Well, we've heard old songs and new songs. Some of us didn't know the old songs. Some of us didn't know the new songs. But it's good to have you here. That's part about being in a diverse congregation with each age group listening to one another. I think that's a sign of a healthy church. Several months ago, um, a couple left our church, went up to uh, Tennessee. Um, We uh, hugged them goodbye, not because we wanted to see them leave, but because we were sorry to see them go. But they're here visiting. The Clumps, would you raise your hands over there? We're glad you're back. I think the housing market is a little rough right now if you want to move back, but we're glad to help you out. Also, we're going to have a word of prayer. Um, we just got a note that Jeanette Whitaker has been in pain quite a bit over the last several days, and so we want to pray for her. So before we get into our message, let's do that. Father, we do thank you for... Um, your blessings and your watch care over us in good times and in not so good times. And Father, we would like to pray for Jeanette right now and lift her up. Uh, Only you know how to heal and to bring strength to her body. We pray for the whole family as they minister to their wife and mother. And we pray, Father, that... um, as a local body of believers, that you would continue to create within us a sense of your presence and the call not only to be your children, but to be brothers and sisters one to another. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back. I got to hear uh, both of Adam's sermons and was very encouraged. I could actually hear you respond to his sermons, and uh, it was all positive, and uh, I appreciate your support, and we appreciate uh, being able to have someone of his youth and energy who understands and rightly divides or handles the Word of God. We are continuing We're in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. So uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And let's always remember that the power resides in God's Word. Thank you, and you may be seated. 
Let me say from the beginning that my introductory remarks will be as long as the text interpretation and explanation, because when we talk about preaching, we need to set the tone of what we are talking about so that we don't have any misunderstandings. For there are some of us who have gone to church all of our lives, and we think we know what preaching is. And then there are those who have not gone to church. They are looking for what the true meaning of worship is and what a true meaning of church is and a congregation. And so knowing that those two sets of perspectives uh, are listening, please be patient as we try to bring things uh, to an introduction so that we can understand what we are reading. Today, we will be asking the question, is preaching really folly? That is, does it have any place in our world? Does it have any place in religious experience? Is it to be valued? Is it important? But before we can even answer those questions we need to come to some understanding of what the Greek word or what the original word for preaching really means. Now, pretty much in this society, we have some idea or a very small idea of what preaching is. So we need to take a view. We need to step back. We need to see what this word means so that all of us can be on the same page uh, when we get to the text itself. Now, if you are a Christ follower, you probably view preaching in a positive light. You may have your preferences on how it is done. Do we agree with that? I have a grin on my face because every so often Adam and I will uh, compare notes about who's here and who isn't when he preaches versus when I preach. Yeah, I'm just kind of joking on that. (laughs) But generally speaking, other than the way someone preaches, those who go to church on a regular basis uh, have a positive view of preaching and that it is not folly. However, to the non-Christian or to the non-religious, they probably look at preaching. Only what they hear and see, the media tells them that preaching is folly. But if we would define preaching only the way secular thinkers define it, then we can understand why it is viewed negatively. Is it just speaking real loudly about dirty, rotten, no good for nothing sinners? Or is it psychological abuse? You might think. Where is he getting that? You just need to go read what other people think about us. But before and during the time of Paul, when he wrote this letter to Timothy, the Greek word used here really means to be a herald, a proclaimer, a publisher, and an announcer. The word always carried some formality with it and a sense of authority. When there was some kind of a decision by those in authority, whether it was a king or a citizen's council or any ruler, 
there were those in each of those communities who were tasked with heralding the decision that was made. They were to proclaim what the decision was, what was getting ready to happen. They were to announce it. They were to publish it, whether it was policies or laws or news uh, for the common person. It could be the announcement of the death of a king or the birth of royalty or a wedding. It could be the declaration of war or the victory of war or the defeat of war. There was usually a sense of seriousness about the content. And everyone understood that what was being proclaimed would have a direct impact on their lives as individuals and families as, and communities. So, understanding that the word preacher in the Greek means announcer, uh, we could say that news anchors on television are preachers, in a sense. Of course, one of the major differences between the ancient preacher or announcer and news anchors is that sometimes news anchors make up their own news. A press secretary could be considered a preacher in that he or she is the spokesperson for the official who is in authority and has made decisions. We could call Paul Revere a preacher in that he was the official herald that the British are coming. The British are coming. At work, you may hear of a merger, that there's going to be downsizing. Someone is tasked with announcing that, proclaiming that. That person in your corporation or business is a preacher. Maybe there's a bankruptcy. These are heralds. These are proclaimers. These are announcers, publishers, and preachers. So in the broadest meaning of the word that is used here in our text, preaching is not folly. It is necessary. It is helpful so that the word can get out among the people. Now, if we address preaching in a religious sense, then we understand there's a divide between those who are religious and those who are not. Those who have an ear for coming to church and listening to someone speak about the Bible and explain the Bible, and those who would find that repulsive. Here in the United States, though, even among Christians, they are listening to more and more sermons online or on television. I was speaking with a pastor from Kentucky just this week, and one of the biggest challenges that he encounters in the community are people who don't feel that they need to go to church anymore. And one reason is because they can turn on the TV and listen to someone in California or Texas or Missouri or North Carolina and hear, and they can pick and choose the kind of sermon that they want to to hear, kind of like what we do with the news. We pick and choose the news that we want to hear to reinforce what we believe. 
Now, I don't think that I've been uh, really mean when someone in a personal conversation tells me, well, I really don't need to go to church. I listen to so-and-so. There's something in me, and I can say this publicly, but I wouldn't say it personally because it would be just so ugly and mean. So I'm just going to broadcast it out, okay? And that is, if you think that you get all that you need from the Internet or television, the next time you're in the hospital, call him. In his blog entitled, Podcasts Have Commoditized Preaching, How Does This Affect the Local Church? Chris Martin states that good preaching won't get people in seats anymore. While some good preachers can draw a crowd, more and more are skipping church. So between television and the Internet, one can listen to one's favorite Christian music and watch their favorite Christian preachers. Sermons have become a commodity to be consumed by consumers. And the very subject of preaching, live streaming, and podcasting is relevant to our church because we are increasingly improving our presence on the web. So, if we begin to see a decline in local worship, and we see more hits on the Internet, we may have to rethink this. Because I can imagine, here's the conversation in somebody's home. Oh, it's Sunday. This has been a really tiring week. And this weekend, man, our family's just been going here and there I think we should just rest this morning and we'll catch up with the sermon later. Ed Setzer addresses this a little uh, indirectly in his article, How the Church Can Thrive in a Non-Christian World. In his article, Setzer reminds us that our society no longer assumes that the gospel is true. Now, this means that the church, if we stand for the gospel, stands no longer with society. We're at odds with society. But that's painful and it's uncomfortable because we like being in the majority. And now we are no longer in the majority. Setzer reminds us, That the gospel has always been clearer in a non-culturally assumed and accepted environment. The early church thrived in the midst of hostility. Because the Christ followers and disciples preached the cross. And Jesus, him crucified for our sins and his resurrection. Those of us who are a little older, do you remember the comfortable days when we just assumed everybody was a Christian? Whether you went to church or not? I've concluded, along with others, that that culture of overall acceptance has actually harmed the truth of the gospel. 
Setzer calls this a domestication of the gospel because it becomes part of our tradition. And therefore, Christianity has become nominal or average instead of distinct and powerful. (laughs) Here's what he says. Nominalism is dying. And I say good riddance. I, for one, am ready for the gospel to mean the gospel. And for Christians to be known as Christians, people need to see that Christian, quote unquote, isn't just a check box on a questionnaire. It means a life changed by the gospel. Being a Christian is more significant in a hostile and indifferent culture than in friendly surroundings. In other words, what we say and how we live should be so distinct that they can tell us apart from regular society. But we should also be relevant. That is, we don't change the distinction of what we say, but we may have to make some adjustments in how we say it without compromising the distinction of the gospel. In fact, he says this. When they come to hear us talk about Christ, they should find the message of the gospel bizarre. Now, you and I would go, bizarre? How would it be bizarre? Well, to say that we are without Christ, lost and going to hell, is a bizarre notion to this society and culture. To say that if there is a God, and that God became a man, and he lived a perfect life, and he was slain on a cross for our sins, not because he was a good teacher, that is a bizarre thought. And yet, isn't that what the Scripture teaches? This culture would tell us that believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins is bizarre. But we need to be able to communicate in the language of the culture so that they can understand what we mean then the Holy Spirit can penetrate their hearts. And whether it sounds bizarre or not, they see the glory and the beauty of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. You see, Jesus embodied the language and the culture and the traditions of the Jewish people so that they could hear and understand. But what followed? Well, some followed him and some killed him. And here's the irony of it. Those who followed him did not quite understand the gravity that he was going to die on the cross and that he was the son of God. But those who killed him seemed to have understood it because they killed him for blasphemy, identifying himself with God. That's my introduction. Now, we can look at the scripture and see what it says about preaching, can't we? 
In the third chapter, Paul makes clear, and Adam did a great job in talking about the Scriptures. In verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Those are the verses that precede what we read a while ago, verses 1 and 2 from chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. What word? The word that was breathed out by God. Be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You see, for Paul, the scriptures were not opinions of men. And along with Paul, we believe that the Bible is God's written word to us. It is our only authoritative and final rule for faith and practice. You see, I can give you my opinions if and only if, if I believe that my authority exceeds that of the Scriptures. And therefore, I can make it sound the way that I want it to sound. I can write my own Jeffersonian Bible and leave out what I don't like and leave in what I do like. But that places me as the authority. If I believe, and I do, that God's written word is to us and for us, then it is my responsibility as your pastor to herald, proclaim, announce, and publish, and preach His words. We are not to change the meaning so as to fit our dispositions or feelings. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and Christ Jesus... Timothy is to preach the Word of God as if God were listening and taking notes. Because he's the judge of what is said. Not us. We are required to handle the Word of God with integrity and honesty And compassion, because it can be hard sometimes. So you need to know that we love you and that we're not talking about love in such a way that you hate the sermon. He will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. God's word is not trivial. Do I believe that his word has a serious tone to it? And the answer is yes. If we fail, you, in preaching the text, we will be accountable. When Paul said, I charge you, it's the same type of charge that happens in a courtroom when a witness is to put his hand on the Bible, if they do that anymore, and you say, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, or you can put me in jail. James 1 says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. 
For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I love this quote by John Piper. I stand vigilantly on the precipice of eternity speaking to people who this week could go over the edge whether they are ready or not. I will be called to account for what I said there. None of us know when our last breath will be. This may be the last sermon that I ever preach because of death or that you ever hear because of death. Therefore, every Sunday, we are accountable. Jesus will return and he will judge all things. But until then, we preach the cross because it is through the cross, his death, his burial, and resurrection that we come to know him and we become part of his kingdom and his family. I stand here week after week, and Adam does, proclaiming and explaining God's word so that through Christ you will enter the kingdom by repenting of our sin and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. John Piper wrote a, an article called um, What I Mean by Preaching. Here's just a few things. Preaching is expositor, expository exaltation. Expository means that preaching aims to exposit or explain or apply the meaning of the Bible. That's what we seek to do. Every sermon should explain the Bible and then apply it to our lives. But preaching is also exaltation. This means that the preacher does not simply explain what the Bible says, and the people don't simply try to understand what he explains. Rather, the preacher and the people exalt over the, what the Bible is teaching and is explained. In other words, preaching does not come after worship in the order of service. Preaching is worship. I had a professor from another country who believed that after your call to worship and prayer of confession, preaching should come first, and then all the music is in response to what you've heard from God's Word. Because it's God's Word that brings us into His presence so that we can then exalt Him with our voice because we have heard from Him in His Word. We're to be ready in season and out of season. I don't particularly care for that phrase because when I'm out of season, I don't like sometimes what I read because it's personally convicting. Or there may be an issue that's going on in the lives of some people. And I don't like that, okay, these verses now are addressing that. What is that person going to think? Guess what? God doesn't care if I like it or not. In season or out of season, when it's convenient or when it's not convenient, when it's going to be accepted or when it's not going to be accepted, whether I feel like it or if I don't feel like it, none of that matters. Just as an example, several years ago, 
When we seriously looked at the qualification of elders, when we were looking at transferring into an elder uh, leadership here, I led the church to vote in keeping with biblical qualifications only. Now, if God would have consulted me, and I told you this at that time, or other Baptists like me, we would have changed some of those qualifications to fit our Baptist traditions. I was uncomfortable in my teaching of these qualifications, but I yielded to the Scriptures, not to my tradition. We're to convince and rebuke and exalt or exhort with long-suffering and teaching. You know, people don't mind preaching as long as it doesn't get into their lives, as long as it's not intrusive in their lives. But with compassion, nevertheless, in a personal, practical, and persuasive way, we are to simply proclaim what it says. Why? In verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Many today, even our churches, will not put up with sound teaching. They will not only not put up with sound teaching, they will show an insatiable appetite for teachers who will flatter them and accept their passion to sin as acceptable. We live in a time when there is no regard for truth. People enjoy fake news. People have itching ears. They're looking for what will Support their personal behaviors. So, how are we supposed to deal with this? Well, we're to be watchful. We should know what's going on in our culture. So that we as a church knows how to communicate the same distinct gospel that is written. If we were in Japan, we would learn Japanese and we would learn their culture. If we were in another country, we would learn their language and we would learn their culture. Our culture is changing. It is up to us to listen to what's going on. Why? For us to change the gospel? No. But to make it distinctly clear so that the culture understands it. And the last thing he tells us is this. Fulfill your ministry. What was Timothy's major responsibility during this letter? It was to pastor a church. His major responsibility to God was his local congregation. His people. And God calls pastors to lead the church to be the church that glorifies God, that exalts Christ, that edifies one another, and presents the gospel to a lost and dying world. I 
will tell you this, and I do believe this. The Bible preached is the most important thing we do. Why? Because the purpose of preaching and proclaiming and explaining God's Word is so that we will become what God wants us to be. But since people can hear these sermons on the television and internet, why should they come to a local church? Many who have left the church did so. Not because of the preaching and not because of the music, but because we as a church did not reflect the character of Christ in our conversations, in our demeanor, in our behavior. The reason we preach God's Word is so that God will transform us into the likeness of Christ so that people outside the church will see authentic Christ followers. So what is God doing in your lives? How is God's Word transforming you as a believer if you are a believer. See, Paul is telling Timothy, don't just preach, but fulfill the whole ministry. And what is the whole ministry? As a responsible pastor of a congregation, our responsibility is to lead you toward Christ and His transforming power. Because what God is doing in your life and in my life, not necessarily from the pulpit, but what he's doing in your life has a more powerful effect on this culture than even what we do on Sunday morning here. Do you get that? That your lives are a sermon. And you speak forth the grace of Christ. One of my favorite professors, he never published anything. He printed his notes for seminary, and I have them. And I was leaving, and I said, Dr. Barnard, you've got to write something. I mean, I want to take what I've learned from you and carry it with me. And I was humbled by his response. He said, Neil, don't you know that you're my epistle? I don't need to be writing books as your pastor. You are my epistle, so to speak. What happens in your life and the life of this congregation by the preaching of God's word, that is what we want to see and experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit among us. Preaching is a commodity. You can get it on the internet. 
Christian music is a commodity. You can get that on the Internet. You can get prayers on the Internet. Anything that we do on a Sunday morning, you can get on the Internet except for one thing, and that is the community of Christ followers together in worship and loving one another. You cannot get that anywhere else except for in a local congregation. Paul put it this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This world needs to see a sacrificial love from a biblical community. No, the proclamation of God's word is not folly. Not if the Holy Spirit moves among us. And transforms us into the image of Christ. Jesus is the word of God personified. And he is the content of our preaching. For only Jesus can change us. Only he can transform us into his image. And as a good shepherd, Jesus proclaimed the mercy and the grace of God by his death and his resurrection. On the cross, he paid the sin debt that all of us owe. And by the resurrection, he demonstrated that he has the power over death and our sin to transform us into his image and for his glory. If that takes place in this congregation, preaching is not folly. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow to your Son as Lord and Savior. We believe that what you have written is your word to us. That points us to Christ. And it is he and he alone who can transform us into your people. So, Father, as we sing these words of this song, the ancient words that are true, I pray, Father, that you would change us and let this be a confession. of love for you and for your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.